friends, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in a moment like this, we are able to pause and to look at your word together. We ask you, Father, to address us, to encourage us and to challenge us, to speak your word to us and to enable us not only to hear it, but to believe it. Father, with everything else going on for each one of us, please enable us now to hear what you have to say and strengthen us to be your people. For this we ask of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the last couple of weeks have been extraordinary, haven't they? As uh, many people have said, our world really has not seen the like of an event like COVID-19 since the Spanish influenza outbreak of 1919, 100 years ago. Most of us have lived through a period of extraordinary stability, even if it hasn't seemed like that all the time. Whatever we've faced in the past few decades, though, there has been nothing like this that has so disrupted ordinary life for billions upon billions of people right across the planet. And it will change us. We might not see exactly how yet, but it will change us. And in the meantime, the rapid changes and the instant communication worldwide just seems to ramp up the anxiety, doesn't it? Well, I thought about uh, leaving aside our series on Matthew for the moment and instead preaching on the sovereignty of God or the steadfast love of our Heavenly Father, the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, our inclusion together in the spirit or something like that. There are so many things we need to be reminded about and we need to comfort each other with just at the moment. But then I thought again, we have been flooded with sermons like that through the live stream church services last weekend, through sermon podcasts and websites and other things. And that is entirely right. I'm glad that people have stopped what they're doing and tackled the big questions this event raises for all of us. But it is just as important for us to continue our staple diet of letting God address us in his word and shape our lives and priorities by his agenda. And that's because this pandemic will end sooner or later. And when it does, we will need to know who it is we trust, why, and what are his great plans for the universe as the life of people is rebuilt all over the globe. So will you turn with me to Matthew's gospel, this time to Matthew chapter 12, and the passage this morning starts at verse 22. Matthew chapter 12 and from verse 22. Then a blind and mute demoniac was brought to him and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the whole crowd were amazed and said, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this one only casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if the Satan casts out the Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has overtaken you. 
Or how is anyone able to enter the strong man's house and take away his goods unless he has first bound the strong man and then he will plunder his house? The one who is not with me is against me and the one who does not gather with me scatters. Because of this, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy of the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever says a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten, for the tree is known from the fruit. Brood of snakes, how can you speak good when you're evil? For the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. A good man from his good treasure brings out good things. An evil man from his evil treasure brings out evil things. I tell you, for every idle word which has been spoken by men, they will give an account on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be vindicated, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, the action which is the stimulus for this entire encounter happens in just three words in Psalm 22. In, sorry, verse 22. He healed him. It's interesting, isn't it? No detail, no elaboration. We don't know what words were used and whether Jesus laid his hands on him or what else passed between them. Just three little words. He healed him. If we remember the passage that comes just before this and Matthew's quotation of Isaiah 42 about God's chosen servant, then perhaps we can see that Jesus is here demonstrating the character of the servant Isaiah had foretold. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out until he brings justice to victory. Here is a man who perhaps had never seen and never spoken closed in on himself perhaps for many, many years. If anyone is a bruised reed or a smouldering wick, it's this man. And Jesus doesn't cast him aside as useless or ignore him as someone unimportant. Instead, he treats him with compassion and gentleness. He healed him. Now, it's important to remember that Jesus is like that, isn't it? Those on the edge, those most vulnerable, those helpless before forces bigger and more powerful than they can handle, need to remember that he is like this. He doesn't break bruised reeds and he doesn't snuff out smouldering wicks. He's much more compassionate than that. And though it's not the main point of the passage, it's, it's worth lingering on for just a minute. The great sovereign, unstoppable power of the Christ who stilled the storm and raise the dead is a great comfort to us. Nothing can overturn his purpose. Nothing can withstand his direction. But so too is the gentleness and the love of Jesus. He understands bruises. He understands brokenness. He understands what it is like when the light is just about to go out. He understands what it is to, to live under forces too big for us to counter or control. He understands who we are. Bruised reeds, smouldering wicks. And he knows how to lead us in a way that will not overwhelm us or tear us down. He knows how to lift us up and carry us to safety.
and in the midst of all that's going on around us. We need to hear this, don't we? Some of his people he will carry gently through death. Some he will carry gently to recovery. But in either case, he will carry them. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. He's like that. But the real emphasis of the passage is not so much on what Jesus did that day as it is on how one particular group responded to what he did. Not, not the crowd with their scepticism. This couldn't be the son of David, could it? They expected no as an answer to that question. Of course not. What Matthew draws our attention to is the other response, the, the response of the Pharisees who claim this one only casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Or the emphasis more accurately is on what Jesus says when he hears them say this. This is, you might remember, not the first time this explanation has been advanced by the Pharisees. In Matthew 9, another mute man had been healed and the Pharisees had said then, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. But it is after the accusation has been made a second time that Jesus deals with it here in Matthew 12. Because what the Pharisees are saying is so serious, it cannot be left unanswered. Consider for a moment just what they're saying. You see, the words from Isaiah 42 had given the proper perspective on Jesus and his mission. God's servant, God's chosen, the one in whom he is well pleased, the one upon whom the Lord has placed his spirit. As we saw last time, the, the whole of Matthew's gospel to this point has been highlighting the role of the Holy Spirit in all Jesus came to do. The spirit enabled Mary to conceive him, the Spirit had descended upon him at his baptism. John the Baptist had spoken of how the one to come would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Everything about Jesus was done by, with, and in the Spirit of God. And what the Pharisees were doing at that point was deliberately, insistently, resolutely refusing to acknowledge that. Though all the evidence was there right in front of them, they would not acknowledge it. They were not only blind, they were willfully blind. They chose to be blind. They refused to open their eyes and see. But it's actually worse than that. For they do not deny that Jesus did what he did. There's no way they would have gotten away with that. Yes, he did cast out the demon that had inflicted those things upon this man. He did tackle not only this man's physical problem, but the spiritual problem which stood behind it. Yes, he did all that. But they refused to acknowledge that this was the work of God. That it was good. That it was an act of God's kindness. They refused to acknowledge the work of the spirit of God in this man. Through this man. By this man. What the Pharisees were saying was not at all trivial, you see. It was, it was not a throwaway line. It was not as if they'd simply slipped up and said something they should not have said. No, what they said was a carefully rehearsed repudiation of all that Jesus claimed to be. I mean, they said it before. It was their settled position. 
they hated and they opposed what was being done by the Spirit of God. It was not just the man Jesus they rejected, but any suggestion that God was working in and through him. They, they rejected the testimony that God's Spirit rested upon him. As one man has put it, they took what was good and called it evil. They took what was true and called it false. They took what was from God and they said it was from the devil. These were dangerous words because they gave expression to what was in their hearts. The settled, unwavering position of their hearts. And they would never come back from that. They would never come to him for forgiveness for that. They would never acknowledge him in that way. So the good he had done was done right in front of their very eyes. In law, it's sometimes called Nelsonian knowledge. You might uh, remember the story. Admiral Horatio Nelson of the Royal Navy in the middle of the, the Battle of Copenhagen in um, 1801 refused to acknowledge his fleet commander's signal to break off the attack and instead lifted his telescope to his blind eye and insisted, signal? What signal? I really don't see a signal. It was there in plain sight, but he refused to see it. A steady refusal to acknowledge the truth because you are determined to act otherwise. Now understand what the Pharisees said and how dangerous it was, particularly in the light of the words from Isaiah 42 that are recorded immediately before this passage. And you'll better understand what Jesus has to say. Well, what Jesus has to say in response falls into three parts and each part has a key word, an ordinary little word, which in each case captures for us what Jesus is saying. I wonder whether you noticed them when I read the passage a minute ago. Divided, it's there in verse 25. Known, it's there in verse 33. And condemned, there in verse 37. Let's start with division the one you've manufactured and the one that's real. What the Pharisees were suggesting or rather insisting upon was ludicrous when you think about it. And Jesus makes clear that it is ludicrous. Every kingdom divided against itself is destroyed and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. That's just common sense, isn't it? You can't move forward if you're divided. You can't maintain a stand if you're divided. It's actually a common strategy of war, isn't it? Divide and conquer. So what makes you think that if the Satan cast out the Satan, his kingdom can stand? He would be divided against himself, and that is a recipe for disaster. What absolute nonsense. They're grasping at straws, aren't they? Like so many around us, even today. The evidence is there in the empty tomb, uh, the eyewitnesses testimony, the lives of men and women over the centuries changed so dramatically by the spirit of God, bringing us to faith, uniting us to Christ and giving us new life. And yet any other explanation is considered plausible. Because they have already decided that the conclusion is unacceptable. These men stand self-condemned because even some of their own have cast out demons. Let your own sons judge what you're saying, Jesus says to them. Not only would the Satan be divided against the Satan, but you are divided against your own people, your own sons. 
But there is another explanation for what Jesus did that day. What Jesus did that day, what Jesus does each and every day, is done by the Spirit of God. And if that is true, then you are face to face with the kingdom of God, Jesus says. The Satan has been overpowered. He has been bound and his house is being plundered. That's what you're seeing right in front of you. He did not triumph in the wilderness when he tested Jesus and he cannot win now because he is bound. Now that's when Jesus makes one of those statements that captures the imagination and crystallizes what is at stake in a moment. The one who is not with me is against me and the one who does not gather with me scatters. The Pharisees with their fanciful cover for their hard-hearted refusal to face the truth about Jesus had unwittingly laid bare the real division, the division that really matters. Jesus made clear in the face of what was said that day that there is no such thing as neutrality towards him. There is an unavoidable binary character to human life. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. There's, there's no middle ground, no neutral, no man's land in this war. And that simple reality makes clear another. The one who does not gather with me scatters. There is no nice, respectable, non-committal middle ground when it comes to Jesus. When all the masks are taken away, you are either for him or against him. You either gather with him or scatter with the enemy. And that's what the Pharisees and those listening in on this confrontation needed to hear that day. And it's what so many need to hear with absolute clarity this day. It's what you and I need to be reminded of this day, isn't it? No middle ground, no sideline, either for him or against him, either gathering with him or scattering with the enemy. The Pharisees' own arguments had, in fact, manufactured a division. The Satan divided against himself. It was ludicrous. But Jesus points away from that allusion to a real division, for him or against him, gathering or scattering. And brothers and sisters, do you, do I need to be reminded of how stark that reality is this morning? Don't let even the coronavirus blind you to it. Well, secondly, known what your words make known. These next verses, uh, verses 31 to 35, are the verses which have troubled many Christians over the centuries. People have wondered whether perhaps they could have committed the unforgivable sin. Others have used these words of Jesus to frighten Christians into agreeing with them. I remember when uh, I was accused of blaspheming the spirit because I challenged what a Pentecostal pastor was teaching. I know men and women in Africa who have been accused of blaspheming the spirit because they've stood against the prosperity gospel. If you don't endorse this ministry or validate this experience, or if you don't conduct ministry this way, then you're blaspheming the spirit. But friends, remember the context of Jesus' words and look carefully at what he actually says. In the first place, there is forgiveness available. Don't skip over that. There is forgiveness available for every sin, Jesus says, for every blasphemy. That's the starting point as far as Jesus is concerned. He came to save his people from their sins. 
He came to rescue people, to provide forgiveness. God doesn't stint on forgiveness. Jesus came so that by his shed blood, by his death in our place, we might be forgiven. Forgiveness is not only possible, it's available. Come to Jesus and be forgiven. Receive forgiveness richly, freely. That's where Jesus starts. And only then does he give the qualification. But the blasphemy of the spirit will not be forgiven. Speaking against the spirit will not be forgiven. And this is where we must understand these words in their context. They are spoken to and as a warning for, in the first instance, the Pharisees and those listening in. What the Pharisees were saying, this one only cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that is what provokes this warning from Jesus. If there is anything that without a doubt is the blasphemy of the spirit, it is these words by these people on that day. And what makes those words so serious is that they reveal something about the Pharisees that is deadly. They reveal that these Pharisees have already decided against Jesus, not just the man Jesus, but any suggestion that this man is the spirit anointed servant who brings deliverance and forgiveness. They will not come to him. They will not ask him for forgiveness, not now, not ever. And because they will not come, because they will not recognize him as the one the spirit reveals him to be, they, they cannot be forgiven. In the face of what was being done right in front of them, they will not budge because they had already turned irrevocably away from him. So what they say reveals their heart. That's why Jesus talks about trees and fruit. A tree is known by its fruit. If the tree is good and healthy, the fruit will be good and healthy. If the tree is diseased, rotting inside, the fruit will be rotten. That's the way of it. What is going on on the inside is made plain on the outside. The mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart. These words of the Pharisees showed what was going on inside. And that is still true today. To be presented with Jesus and all that he has done and to explain it away, to decide against him, to refuse to come to him for forgiveness is a repudiation of the work of God's spirit that reveals something deadly in the heart. Now that's very sobering, isn't it? It's a strong and hard word. But remember, Jesus gives strong and hard words because he is the one who will not break a bruised reed and will not stuff out a smouldering wick. Because he loves, he gives warnings in order to prevent this tragedy. And isn't that why we are engaged with mission, even if its mode is very different this year? Because we want to prevent that tragedy in the lives of men and women around us. We want them to come to Jesus and be forgiven. But that was the one thing these Pharisees would never do. You see, they weren't bruised, but stubbornly rigid and immovable. They weren't smouldering, but blazing at full strength in their hatred of Jesus. 
And so to the last two verses of this section of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, there is an accounting. There is a day when we will need to give an account of even the idle words we use from day to day. Well, you see, since it is true that the mouth speaks out of the abundance of the heart, what we say is never really unimportant or trivial. Words are more precious commodities than we often realize. They reveal who we are, where our priorities are, what we are really like on the inside. Oh, sure, we can use them to hide or to deceive. But even then, that says something about what's going on inside, doesn't it? To those who fed the doubt of the crowd by suggesting this one only cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And to those who refuse to come to him today, Jesus says, by your words, you will be vindicated and by your words, you will be condemned. And wouldn't it be a tragedy beyond measure to stand before Jesus on that day and recognize that you have set yourself against him, that your words have indeed revealed what was true in your heart, that you've always refused to come to be forgiven. So against the foolishness of the division manufactured by the Pharisees, Jesus set the real and lasting division. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He insisted that the words we use reveal something about the heart. And in the case of the Pharisees who stood against him that day, what was revealed was terrifying. Their blasphemy of the spirit will not be forgiven. And he reminded them and us that there is an account to be given for all we say and what it reveals about our hearts. And all of this, he says, because he is the one who came to save his people for, from their sins, because he is the chosen servant who will not break a bruised reed or snuff out the smouldering wick. Shall we pray briefly? Our Father, we pray that having heard your word this morning in your grace, you might give us your spirit and enable us to heed it. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.